millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This week's episode of the Secret Library podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. To get a 30-day trial complete with a free audiobook download, visit secretlibrarypodcast.com slash audible. This is episode 104 of the Secret Library Podcast, The Truth About Writing Books. I have two amazing guests this week. All the guests are amazing, but I'm really excited about this week. My guests are Amber Ray and Madeline Miller, and each of these conversations left me so inspired and excited, and it was very hard to wait to share them with you. So I know you're going to love listening to each of these interviews. In addition, announcements this week. As always, thank you for your notes, comments, tweets, and responses to the show. I wanted to let you know that I will be on vacation um, starting today, release day, through June 3rd. So if I'm a little less responsive or not getting back to you on any of these forums right away, it's because I am on a little escape. And so next week's episode will have the intro recorded in advance. It, it has been recorded before leaving. So for anyone who signs up for the Patreon, thank you so, so much. And you will be thanked on the show once we're back in early June. But episodes will still be coming out on time. You can check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash secret library. Okay, let's get on with the show. Amber Ray is an author, artist, speaker, and curious human devoted to waking up to truth. She's had a winding journey from the nonstop frenzy of the digital agency world to the high-tech gold rush of Silicon Valley, to the always-on and working world of entrepreneurship. She has hustled for approval and did everything she thought she was supposed to do. She popped Adderall to get more done and swapped food for alcohol to take the edge off. And while she was on a trajectory of success by all conventional means, she began to feel empty on the inside. She searched to find herself through career accolades, the approval of men, far distant countries, and empty bottles of wine. And then when that didn't work, she searched one more place inside herself. She began writing to understand her feelings, meeting with healers, coaches, therapists, and neuroscientists to understand the trappings of a fearful mind, and started making art as a vehicle to see and be seen. Her life became a living laboratory for self-exploration with her as the guinea pig. As she questioned the belief structures that stifled her, she set herself free. And as she turned toward her uncomfortable emotions instead of pushing them away, she began to discover the real her. To guide others in the insights she was uncovering, she began hosting self-discovery experiences around the world. And then she discovered that her life's work is to connect people to their emotional world and thus to connect us to ourselves. I was really excited to have Amber on to talk about her book, I was sold on the title alone, Choose Wonder Over Worry, because I think that Many of us, especially writers, are particularly guilty of choosing worry over wonder. There's always a reason not to write. There's always a reason to criticize the writing that we are doing. There's always a reason um, to feel bad about what's going on, on uh, what's going down on the page. So it was great to have a chance to take a breath, look at ways to open up to wonder instead, 
So I hope this conversation is as encouraging for you as it was for me to have with Amber. And I know you're going to love Amber Ray. Hey, Amber, thanks so much for coming on. Of course, I'm thrilled to be here. So I've been really excited to talk to you about Mm. this book because just the title alone about choosing choose wonder over worry is like an instruction that I think everyone should follow. (laughs) But yet it's it's one of those things that's very simple and yet not easy. When it comes to writing and the kind of mental machinations that we can get into when writing, I think it's one of the hardest things to do. So one of the things that you talked about really early on in the book that I definitely encounter when working with clients or talking to any writers is the challenge of how vulnerable to be. Mm. And I th- I thought it was really interesting that you had that issue because you've done a lot of public speaking and not just for like 10 people in a, in a room. Like you've done real big audience public speaking, which to most people is one of their biggest fears. Like they'd mm-hmm. rather be shot or have <laughs> other horrible things happen to them than public speak. So it was interesting to me to hear that after doing all of that speaking on these topics, that it was still really scary to uh, write about it. So I'm wondering if you could say more about that. Totally. Well, I think, you know, whenever I'm invited to speak, usually it's it's an audience that's really ready to receive me and really ready to receive that message I've found. So like one of my big talks was Kate Spade and like their part of their mission is women living brave and interesting lives. So it actually felt like a safe space. Whereas like a book you write, which goes out into the orbit and you have no idea who's going to open it or think you're a terrible, awful human is going to judge you for, you know, opening up yourself. I, I feel like for me, that was even more terrifying. Mm. And, and I think, you know, the fears that come along with public speaking and the fears that come along with a book, you know, it is, it's a similar like being seen. Those were super real for me. So you talk about how you kind of just went for it in the book, but I'm wondering if you could slow that process down a little bit and talk about some of the strategies you use on a more specific level so that people could maybe apply them if they're sitting there like white knuckling it at the page going, can I actually write this down? Totally. Well, so there are a few things. One thing that Cheryl Strayed said that really helped me is that there's the book you write and there's the book you publish, which could be there's the post you write and there's the post you publish. There's the article you write, there's the article you publish. And the most important thing is to just, you know, write what needs to be written first and to let yourself have that really messy draft. And that's something I struggled with tirelessly in the book because I have this crazy perfectionist inside my head who was constantly telling me that it wasn't good enough and everyone was going to hate it. And I can get more into the strategy around that later. But it's, yeah, just knowing that what you write is not necessarily what everyone's going to read and letting the writing process be a healing journey for you. Like giving myself permission to write for myself has been so liberating and another question, it was at this retreat with Cheryl Strait that she said is, you know, do you tell your journal the truth? Mm. And I was like, ooh. <laughs> and that, again, was like really encouraging for like every day is an opportunity to first write to myself. And it starts when I open my journal and I just like stream of consciousness, express what needs to be said and, you know, really allow myself to go into places that feel a little scary or achy or to name what the fear is, to dive into where the fear is coming from. Like that's that safe container to do that. And that's just building the the muscle of vulnerability with myself. 
Because what I often find is that anything that I'm afraid of happening out in the world is something that I haven't yet reconciled with myself. Mm. And so if I can be comfortable, because sometimes I'm like sitting in my journal terrified to actually write the next word because I'm afraid of where it's going to go or what truth wants to be revealed that I'm not ready to accept yet. That's so so interesting. I think that's the most important first step is to like dive into your own truth and to go where you don't even want to accept or admit to yourself. And there's so much power there. Definitely. Because I think that we get stuck and we start thinking, I'm thinking of something Susanna Conway once said that I've hung on to since was the, what am I making this mean question? Mm, mm -hmm, Because like, if there's a truth that we're afraid to admit, it's often because we're making that mean something else that we don't like. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. There's actually a diagram in the book that has two circles. Um, One says what actually happened. And then there's another circle that says what you made it mean. And in in between is your story. And so, yeah, like I I can think of an example, like if doubts are coming up in my relationship, I might make that mean, oh my God, everything is ending. This is terrible. And my life is over. (laughs) Right. Which, which I like to, you know, our worry voice, which is what I refer to that as, is like, is very dramatic and loves to think of the very worst case scenario. Yeah. You had something about that as well, that there are the feelings that we're having, but then there are the feelings that you're having about the feelings. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, well, it's, we, you know, I think research has shown that our feelings last about, I think it's like 90 seconds if we just sit with and allow the feeling to move through us, it's like 90 seconds. Um, But what sticks is the story we tell about it. And so, you know, there could have been a story I made as a child around my dad dying that men I love will leave me that stayed with me for 20 years. And it wasn't that he died. Like the story was he died. And the, the meaning was I'm not lovable. I will be abandoned. And so... Again, that was because as a child, I probably didn't have the ability to be able to process that grief. And it was something I had to revisit later. Yeah, I think that was fascinating to go and talk about the process that you push some things down and that in their absence, they got bigger. Yes, 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 yes. So it's like if, you know, sadness isn't the problem, grief isn't the problem, fear isn't the problem. None of these things are are bad. Anxiety is not bad. It's it's the relationship to them. When we numb, escape, try to push away, they only get larger. And so, you know, when I say choose wonder over worry, which I think is a really beautiful wink, it's also like, let's get curious about what our emotions are wanting to teach us, particularly the negative and the scary ones. Quote unquote negative, (laughs) which can actually be very wise. Yeah. I think we have this fear about what those things mean. Like, oh, I'm feeling scared or I'm feeling upset or I'm feeling angry. There must be something wrong with that. Yes. Or something wrong with me. Right, exactly. Like, I'm not enlightened enough, fill in the blank. I'm not blank enough. Otherwise, I wouldn't feel this way. Yeah. And I, you know, and I, in the whole, like, positivity world, which I'm all for optimism, but it can be, you know, only negative, only positive vibes. And if you're putting negative vibes, something bad's going to happen to you. I, you don't know how many people I've talked to that thought that if they allowed a negative thought to come in, that literally like they're creating a negative reality in their life. Right. And I was like, woo, that's hard. 
It's really like, hard. If that's the case, no wonder you're like white knuckling it with your fingers in your ears going like, la, 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 la. Everything is good. Everything is good. Yeah. I'm like, no, no, no. Take that anxiety and that anger. And so I think, you know, going back to your original question, my next step is I always say use your feelings as fuel. And mm-hmm. so um, in the artist's way, Julia Cameron says, uh, eavesdrop, don't invent. And this was <laughs> one of the biggest things for me because you know, we always can want to like write the most clever sentence or like, I'm going to sound really intellectual and like a journalist here. And like, I know exactly what I'm talking about. And I'm going to try and invent this beautiful thing. And sometimes it's just like, no, actually eavesdrop on what your experience is and in this moment and write from that place. Like maybe if there are thoughts and feelings bouncing around inside of you, write them down. Like that's writing too. (laughs) It's like observing your life can be writing. I think that sometimes people worry it's too easy at that point. It's like Mm. you have to make it hard. Like we really want to make things hard because then we feel like we've earned them or they're more valuable. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's enough hard things in life that if writing something you love, I mean, it's going to be hard sometimes no matter what. And so when it's being easy, I'm like, why not let it be easy? (laughs) Exactly. So you said that you had, this is something you mentioned right before we started recording, that your writing process of this book was one of the most fascinating things you've experienced in your life. So I'm wondering if that plays into a process that happened differently than you expected. Yes. So I haven't fully talked about this yet. So this might be, this is going to be more like stream of consciousness. We'll see where this goes. I'm like, I don't know what the very tangible takeaway is yet, but I'm sure we'll get there. No, the Um, rambling is always the good part. (laughs) People come on this show and say, oh my God, was I rambling? And I'm like, that was the good part. (laughs) But so, so when I got my book deal, um, the proposal I had written, I felt like, like I always feel like writing is this peeling back these layers of an onion. And I like peel back one layer and I'm like, ooh, I can go deeper. And then I peel back another and I'm like, ooh, ooh, ooh. And then I finally find this gem. And so when I had written the proposal, I felt like that was a really good layer, but a really safe layer of how to write this book. Mm. And I decided, so I had, they they asked me, can you write your book in two and a half months? And I was like, of course. (laughs) (laughs) And then I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? (laughs) And so I basically like, cleared my entire calendar and flew to Bali and lived in a hut for two and a half months. Oh my God, you and Ezzy Spencer and your huts in Bali is like the secret weapon. Well, it's so funny how did Ezzy and I know each other. We were in Bali at the same time. So she was there while I was writing my book. I love this image of both of you writing these books in like separate huts in Bali. It's exactly what was happening. (laughs) That's amazing. And then we'd be like talking to each other about our blocks, all the things. Um, and so, so when I got there, I was a little like, okay, where am I going with this? Because I don't want to, I don't know, I, w- I don't want to write the book in the way that people, because I, you know, I've done a lot of writing, but I hadn't written a book before, and that is a different beast. And I remember Ryan, Ryan Holiday saying, don't write a word until you have the structure. And I was like, but I don't like my structure. And so I just decided sort of, fuck it, let me actually start with the stories. And so for me, I started story mapping. And the question for me is, what is the story that I'm aching to tell? And I was reminded of what my dear friend El Luna once said to me, which she's this magnificent artist. And she and has written on, on a topic that is related. Oh, yeah. The Crossroads of Should and Must. Actually, we, exactly. we um, collaborated on that early on. And um, she she basically, you know, she's like, I love, Amber, that your work's always trying to help people. And what if your work could actually cure your own toothache? 
And I think that was something that like Picasso had once said. And mm. so I went to first of like, what are the stories that I'm aching to tell that I, that I need to write? And I just like, for me, when I have pen and paper and I put a circle with like the question and I just mind map, that for me is like, you know, the, the playground and the sandbox to really see what wants to come through. And oftentimes, you know, like 15 to 30 minutes later, I've uncovered like, you know, 14 different stories and I've now connected the dots between some of them and all these ideas have emerged. And I'm like, okay, that one is the one. And then I pick the one that has the most juice, like either the one that I like am most excited to tell or most afraid to tell. And so then I just started writing these stories. And as I started writing these stories, I decided while in Bali to not have any alcohol or like I was, I'm going to be extremely sober. And I started getting visited by, as, as all these worries started coming to the surface, because the very interesting thing about writing a book about choosing wonder over worry is that it was like every worry or fear that I thought I had worked through was like, oh, hey, let's play again. Come look at me. And so like, whether it was like, I don't have enough time or, mm. oh my God, everyone's going to hate this. Like all of a sudden these characters is emerged to like be with me about that worry. So like, for example, with not enough time, like one day I'm sitting and writing in this Bali hut and I imagine this like dog running around and then the dog hopped on my lap and he said, I'm time. <laughs> if you're ever anxious, pet me. <laughs> wow. And I was like, what is going on? <laughs> <laughs> and then I like go to this yoga nidra class, which is this like deep meditation, oh, the, best. the best. And like, next thing I know, I'm like on a bird with my two inner children, Tinka and Ella, who I discovered. Um, nice. And we're like flying to the, they're like taking me to the, the sun and I'm getting on the sun and burning my impurities. And I'm guided through this insane visualization where I meet my dad and my dad gives me this piece of wisdom, um, about like his in my life. And I'm like, what is happening? So it was like these very, like, I felt like I was really accessing other portals. Um, and like sometimes even crossing the dimension of time, if that's even a thing. And it was just like this emergent process of, talking to wonder, talking to worry, and like talking to these characters. So like my perfectionist is this 30-something-year-old uh, blonde British woman named Grace. And mm. so anytime the perfectionist would chime in, Grace and I would have a conversation about it. And I'd be like, what's going on? Like sort of like I started approaching all of my worry characters as these like inner children. Mm -hmm. And these like, like if they were a child, I wouldn't be like, fuck off, go away, you're annoying. I'd be like, hey, you know, what's going on? Like, why are you throwing a tantrum? And so I started approaching things that way. And then that's where so much of my writing came from. So as I would talk to them, I'd be like, oh my God, this is material. Write this down, write this down, write this down. And so it was like my entire two and a half months in Bali, like the experience of writing the book brought so much to the surface that then that then that then became the inspiration for what I wrote and wow. how I approached the writing process. And because all these characters were emerging. Like I did not know. So like in the book, you meet these 27 different like characters or emotions. You meet fear, you meet anxiety, you meet imposter syndrome, you meet shame. You also meet curiosity, courage, and compassion. And I did not at all know that you'd be like meeting them. And that's the way I ended up structuring the entire book. Um, and that is because I was in real life meeting them. <laughs> that's so wild. And so I realized like, whoa, it can be this amazing, you know, what's, and this was, I really feel like I 
deeply moved into the eavesdrop don't invent because I was just like noticing and observing my own mental and emotional experience and seeing that that's the type of book I was writing. I was using that as, as yeah, the fuel for the writing. That's incredible. I find this incredibly validating whenever I hear stories like this, where people have pitched and sold a book on a proposal that is then changed completely <laughs> when they're writing it. And I think this is important for people to know that, mm. that there are many reasons why a publisher will buy your proposal, and it isn't necessarily the thing you think it is. Totally. Totally, totally. And, and I was actually terrified. I was like, oh my God, they're going to give like want their money back because <laughs> I went on such a different direction and like and my the editor you know was very excited about the science and I was less excited about the science and uh. I was more excited about the vulnerable storytelling with like science from conversations I had with different psychotherapists and neuroscientists weaved in very naturally and but she ended up being like that's if that's what is right for you, that's what's right for you. And she was, she did say something in the beginning that was super encouraging, which was she, she said, you know, I'm going to make suggestions, but you ultimately get to decide because this is your book. And so if I suggest something and it just doesn't work for you, that's fine. And so um, I then, you know, I then asked her toward the end of the book, like, does this happen often? Because I, you know, I'm thinking I'm the only one who doesn't follow um, you know, word for word, page by page and bring to life that proposal. She said it goes about 50-50. So she said 50% of people literally turn in exactly what their proposal is. And about 50% of people, it looks nothing like it. <laughs> and so that, that's amazing. That was reassuring for me too, because I thought, okay, so I'm, you know, this, this happens. And, you know, they understand that when you write a proposal and when you actually sit down to write, they're two different processes. And so... They were, you know, I don't, I can't say that every editor is like that, but they were very encouraging for me to write the book I wanted to write. That's so important. So what did it look like before compared to, so when everybody gets the book, they'll imagine, what is this book in a parallel universe that was written with the proposal? I think it was like, I don't even remember. It was That's like, hilarious. It just ceased to exist. Yeah. It was like part one, get out of your own way. I don't know. Like it was just... Part two, step into your creative power. Part three, practice wonder. I don't know if that was actually it, but it was of that sort of um, frame. And it was, yeah, it definitely was weaving in a lot more statistics and research. And I think just the stories that I used as anecdotes in it um, were not all that interesting. Got it. I was like, yeah, that's the safe story. Or like it had a lot more client, client anecdotes which I actually decided to, which I did a little bit of them, but I, I decided to do less of that. What made you change on that front? Just, you know, I wish I had like, this was the very um, reason. It was just more of a, a feeling of what felt right and what didn't felt, feel right. Absolutely. When I had thought about all the authors in the books, because I, so, okay, backtrack a little bit. I had a mentor once tell me when he read my writing that no one, cares about my story and my story doesn't matter. And while I bet he had a piece of wisdom to share when he said that, or like there was, he meant well when he said that, I really took that to mean that my story didn't matter. And I really battled with that for like five years. And it actually had me stop writing, stop storytelling, stop truth telling. And granted now in reflection, like he is not a vulnerable storyteller. Like he does not do any memoir type writing. He's very like straightforward and direct and to the point. And so 
seeing, you know, coming from that perspective, I can understand where he was going. And I'll also like, you know, okay, well, without I'm trying to empathize with him, but basically, um, I think what drew me to every book that I've loved is how open and vulnerable the author got with me. So I felt like I was able to enter into their world and go on a journey with them. And so I just, you know, knowing that what I was seeing in others was actually what I was seeing and wanting in myself because everything is a mirror. I felt like I just like had to go that direction because that is the direction that felt way more scary. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, nobody would say that nobody cares about Brene Brown's stories in her books. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's so interesting. I mean, I think this happens to everybody in that I hear this all the time and it happened to me as well in a different context of like having a situation where you've had this strong draw to write and there's some message and in some cases it's just a throwaway comment that totally you let that squash that impulse. Mm-hmm. Totally. And so what ultimately pushed you back and you said, I don't care. I don't care if nobody cares about my story. I'm going to write it anyway. Yeah. I think it was remembering that the thing I was most afraid of is the thing that I must do. And that mm. the louder the critical voice got, the louder my saboteur the more I gripped on to that story of that mentor, which of course was what happened when I made it mean, the more I realized, whoa, these are our clues that this is exactly what I'm meant to do because I care so much. And so I had to keep seeing the fear and the resistance and the anxiety and the worry as a signal of exactly what I must do. Definitely. And I felt like that was when I was like, ah, got it, go. (laughs) And of course it didn't just, well, you know, The hardest part for me was committing to it. Once I committed, it was sort of like, I feel like I struggled writing for like five years. And then one day I was like, this is the thing I'm doing. And I'm only going to do this one thing for the next year and see what happens. Um, And when I did that, everything changed. How did it change? I mean, I like signed with an agent within three weeks, had a book deal within four months. Um, A year after, like I signed my book deal, I think a week next week and it's coming out. So it's like, I went from basically getting the deal to writing the book in a year. So I feel like in a year and a half, the entire dream manifested. And I spent five years prior to saying, this is it. This is my thing. I'm going for it. Go. Sitting down. I'm writing the proposal in the next three weeks. Um, Like before I made that commitment, it was just always this like, oh, yeah, maybe it's kind of important, not that important. Um, And so someday I'll write it. Someday I'll write it. And then when I was said, like, no, I'm doing it and I'm doing it right now. And the resistance and the fear and the worry are going to be there. But I'm going to be, I'm going to let wonder lead just a little bit more. It all unfolded. I think this is the part that reminded me of your story about moving to New York was that it didn't, quote, make sense. You know, that there was this sense of like, oh, I have this great job here in San Francisco and everybody thinks it's a great job. And it's paying really well. And, you know, I'm on a trajectory that's logical to other people and I can explain it easily at parties, but (laughs) it feels wrong. Yes. And I think that that can happen with projects like writing a book because most people don't say, oh, I'm going to write a book. I'm suddenly going to be a millionaire. It's going to take care of everything. I'm never (laughs) going to have to work again. It's the most practical thing to do with your life. But it feels wrong not to do it. Yes, 100%. And that feeling for me, I had to realize was enough. Because for a long time, it wasn't enough. And I wanted to analyze and rationalize every decision I was making. But there comes a point when it's like your whole body is like this. Yes, go. Like you can feel it. There's this expansiveness, this openness. 
And, you know, to the point where, and I have full body goosebumps as I'm saying this, mm. um, my body's like, yes, yes, <laughs> do it, go for do it, it. keep going. Um, and, you know, and I, I can say that there's nothing that I have loved and, you know, because the process of writing the book was also painful this past year, I have pushed myself and challenged myself and experienced reject, like, I feel like, you know, I'm really exposing myself and there's so much that comes along with that, but it's it Martha Beck talks about this in her book um finding your own north star how when you align with she talks about there's the social self and there's the essential self which the social self is who everyone basically wants you to be and your essential self is who you truly are and when you really step into that it's like it could you could be going after the most challenging goal but you will like run there with a smile and so I feel like the process of this book has me been like running and dancing with a smile, even though like sometimes it's like really fucking painful and exhausting. I'm like still smiling and still dancing because the love of the craft and the love that I get to do this is so deep. And it's like the thing I'm clearly supposed to be doing that it it feels that way. It sort of reminds me when in a parallel sort of aspect of life, and I've never brought this reference in before, Ooh. but whatever, here we go. And you're going to be like, this is not that dramatic. But um, is when you think about people in relationships mm-hmm, and they're mm-hmm. like, they'll they'll be in something that looks really great on paper, but they'll yes. come up with something that's really small. Like, oh, he wears really ugly pajamas. I can't be with him. <laughs> You know what I mean? And you're like, really? That's it? And you're like, okay. But really what it's about is that they're just not a match and they they need to have a logical reason for it not to work out versus somebody else who on paper, it's a disaster. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't match up at all. And yet they're like, this is perfect. And everything works out, even though there are all of these challenges in place because it's the right fit. I feel like it's the same way with creative projects. Oh, I love that parallel. And it reminds me of how like, before I met my fiance, everyone was like, oh, when you meet the person, you'll know. And I was like, that's so annoying. <laughs> like, what do you mean I'll just know? And they're like, yeah, you know, not, not that they were saying there's one person for you, but you'll know. And I kept being like, okay, well, I haven't known yet. Like, that's annoying. And then be like, am I going to know now? And then, I, and then when it happened, I was like, oh, that's what they were talking about. And it's so, very hard to describe. It's very hard to describe. And I think, I feel like it's the same way with you know, aligning with your calling, your purpose, the thing you're, you're here to do. And there could be many things you're here to do, but you get there and you're like, oh yeah, I get it now. And, you know, I'll say that when I did take this leap from San Francisco to New York, which is almost a decade ago, I think it was eight or nine years ago, I left because I knew this feeling that I'm experiencing now was possible. I don't know why I knew it was possible, but I was betting on it being possible. And I did literally like eight to nine years of experiments to finally align with, ah, that's it. Mm. And so I was like, I think art's it. So let me go do art for a year and a half. And I was like, yeah, art's cool. I like doing these art installations in public spaces, but like, it's not the feeling I thought it would be. It was so interesting. Um, And now, of course, like I'm pulling, you know, all of those curiosities were part of this I feel like almost like larger divine plan because now I'm weaving street art into the book launch and I'm like taking all of these experiments that I've done for the last nine years and now they actually apply and fit into bringing this message to the world. Um, But I kept like for me, I was in search in a way um, of this feeling that I knew that I would feel when I had aligned with the thing. That's so great. I think it's 
people want a logical matchup with Mm -hmm. the thing that feels that way. Mm -hmm. And you don't always get it. Mm -mm. And then you're in this position. I'm kind of in a similar position at the moment where there's something that discovered the feeling, but it requires a lot of logistical nightmares in order to pull it off. And so then you start to go into this conversation of like, is this realistic? Mm. Is this possible? This is a bad idea. Like you start to squash it down. And I was reading your book going, oh, girl, I, this is like telling the exact same parallel. <laughs> um, and I think that it is at your peril because you were talking about how if you don't follow it, then you start to die a little bit from oh, not yeah. following it. Yeah. And like, I don't know about you, but then I start manifesting pain in my body. So like, actually, when I was in Bali, I think I like, it was my right leg. And again, like a few months ago, my right leg, like extreme pain all of a sudden in my foot and right leg. And I'm like, what's going on? And then of course, it was Ezzy. Well, right is the masculine and right is about, and then your foot, it's about taking a step and moving forward and making a decision. Where are you not making a decision? And I was like, oh, <laughs> And so, or like I'll break out in a rash if I start on my chest, if I start to go down a path that's actually out of alignment for me. So my body will like very quickly and loudly speak up. That's fascinating. Yeah, I get a skin thing too when I'm making a, a stupid choice that I think is practical. Mm-hmm. So when you're confronted with people, because you've worked with people on mm-hmm. their creative process, what are you seeing about because I feel like I love somebody listening to be able to say like okay yes I get it I've got this idea I want a book but I'm scared I've got all these worries I'm going to meet all of the characters in the book when I read it (laughs) but what would you say to somebody who's sitting there maybe by themselves maybe without a creative community yet that's got a pain in their right leg and is ready to take a step forward What's the tiny thing they can start with? Yeah, the tiny thing they can start with is, you know, there's actually something called the 100 Day Project that my friend El Luna Mm. launched. It's going right now, but you could join right now. I started late. And basically, you commit to creating one thing every day for 100 days. And this could be, I'm going to do a five-minute like painting meditation or a five-second painting meditation. Or it could be, right now, I'm doing, I'm drawing my feelings so I started getting really curious about using Procreate on iPad, which allows me with an Apple pen to like do these drawings and then it actually videos it. So like that's my thing. But there's this, there is this incredible, I think there's like 900,000 posts. There's this incredible community of creatives on Instagram doing the 100 day project and, you know, trying out something that they're just curious about. And so I would encourage to figure, you know, to, to reflect and say, what is that one thing that I want to do repeatedly Every day for like, you know, I don't know how much time you have, but it could be five minutes, it could be 30 minutes, it could be an hour if you're very excited. And um, and then to participate and having that sort of community and accountability, I think helps so much because then you can watch along other projects and see what other people are doing and really, you know, get your creative juices flowing. Definitely. I think there's nothing scarier than... It's like there's that point. I keep thinking of the Anais Nin quote of like the the point came when it was more painful to remain closed than to open. I mean, that feels like that's like playing in the background, like music as we're talking. (laughs) But I think that there is this point where the thought of pushing away that project and that idea that you have, even if it makes you look ridiculous, even if everybody laughs at you because of it, or even if everybody's critical and horrible, is worse 
it's yeah. just worse than oh, not just trying it. You can try it. It's okay. Yeah. And I will say having gotten some really horrific feedback about the book, um, I, I find that the book is quite polarizing. So people are either giving, telling me things like I want to tattoo your words on my arm or like this book has no substance and, um, you know, I suggest that Miss Ray consider writing fiction. <laughs> wow. So, you know, and it's, it's not as bad as I, like I first had a total shutdown and, um, but it wasn't, you know, once you get through that and once you see like, oh, actually the rejection, again, everything is a reflection. Oh, the rejection is a reflection of my own inner fear about not being worthy or good enough. Let me return to myself and like have compassion for myself. Um, it's not as bad. Now I'm like, bring it, bring it critics. Like it actually can add to the point where I'm now sharing what the critics are saying with my audience. And they're like now like not only like giving more support, but they're, they're feeling like they're not alone and they're, you know, more in the game now. It almost feels like. Yeah. It's almost like you're pre-digesting criticism for them. Yeah, exactly. Like the mama bird. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like explaining how I'm processing it and they're like, Oh, this is so helpful. I can process it like that too. So it's, you know, I think the parts that I was so afraid of were not as bad as I imagined, even as I'm experiencing them. I'm like, oh, okay, I I can handle that. I'm okay. And, um, you know, just keep like my, my word for this year is home. And Mm. it's to always come back home to myself. If I'm like so many exciting opportunities and I'm like, you know, like, okay, come back home, be anchored or like, you know, not enough time, rejection, whatever the fear of being seen. Okay. Come back home. Even if you experience that. And so I think, you know, everything is always an invitation to come back home and see what is your being, you're being taught because all of these experiences are teaching experiences. Definitely. I mean, I think people are always fearful of feedback. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's there's this tricky thing. We've talked about this a little bit in groups I've led. And I, I wonder about this theory about your take on it. But mine is that people have a simultaneous and equally intense fear that their book will never be read by anybody, that mm. it will never be published at all and will have zero impact. That's on one side. Yep. On the other side, there's a fear that this publishing elf will sneak into their house and steal the book while it's still in progress publish it and that everybody will read it before they're ready and hate it and send them horrible feedback. (laughs) Yep. So there's this fear of writing even a crappy first draft because what if the publishing elf comes in through the window and takes it off and everybody gets to read it? Well, funny enough, that actually happened. My my advanced reader copy, my ARC, was not my final manuscript. Oh, boy. And it was being sent out to media and I was having like – full-on breakdown (laughs) like why I people can't read this um and you know I think it was I thought it was much worse than people did but that's even the reviews I'm getting like on these like review sites are of the previous version oh my goodness and so I'm like oh so but you know that's apparently that's pretty standard that the AR the advanced reader copy the ARC does not necessarily reflect the final version but if anything, it's prepared me more for the launch. I had this realization the other day where when the book comes out, I thought I was crossing a finish line and I realized I'm actually not crossing the finish line. I'm literally standing at the starting line and the guy's about to like pull the gun. Um, and I'm starting when the book launches because this entire time I've just been in the dojo 
And so I feel like I've, you know, having all these experiences while terrifying and creating, you know, moments of panicking worry have grown me and like thrust me into what's possible in ways that I couldn't have imagined. Well, I think, I think this is what happens when it's a first book is like that, that there's this point where everything about book writing is in your own private world. Mm -hmm. And that there's that point where the book goes out into the public. And it's the first time that you've had a book out in the public. And that really does change everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, every book you write from now on will be after this book, like you're already a published author. And so there's like a different awareness, I think, when you're when you're writing another one, knowing how it's going to go, at least loosely, even though every book is different. Yeah. Well, yeah, this is the unknown, uncertain part, which just to speak to the fear you were mentioning before. So the fear of people, you know, either hating the early version or never reading it, that in our in our brain, the way that we receive rejection is similar to the way we receive physical pain. And so I feel like the reason why we're so afraid of feedback is because it's literally creating um, physical pain in our body. And then not only in addition to that, but that pain then creates a story of, oh, is this not good enough? Do I not fit in? Do they not like me? You know, then whatever we make, again, that mean. Exactly. And also, I think that to reference the science a bit, which I'm sure with your research, you know more about than I do, but there was a point in time, granted, it was many thousands of years ago, that if you were rejected or you didn't fit in, you could die. Oh, yeah. Versus now we have Amazon Prime. Like if people don't, <laughs> if people don't like your book, and you can't leave the house, you can still eat and survive just fine. But our nervous systems don't believe that yet. Exactly. It's kind of amazing how that changes. It's like it's it's both sort of heartbreaking and sweet that like parts of us just aren't completely caught up with the way things are now. Yeah, we still have our our animal brain and. You know, when we realize that that part of us is just wanting to protect us and keep us safe, we can have compassion for when we have a reaction to being rejected, a reaction to feedback. We can say, oh, and for me, just like being able to label this and name it, name it to tame it, um, be like, oh, this is my like animal brain reacting because I feel like I'm going to like die from the tribe. <laughs> right. I'm like, I'm okay. Again, coming back, I'm okay. <laughs> Yeah, the come back home, like put your feet on the ground, like we're we're still here. We're still here. <laughs> How are your all of your um your worry characters doing with the book coming out, like being out there? Are any of them flipping out a little bit or are they all good? The they're I mean, they they have their moments, they have their like flare ups. I feel like a different one flares up every day. Um and, you know, it's it's a process, but I, I feel like the 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 one that's been recent, so I tell a really vulnerable story in the book about um, my fiancé and this encounter I had with another man that wasn't an encounter but could have been a sexual encounter. And really, I, I think the language I use in the book is that instead of sleeping with him, I slept on it. And I'm a little terrified for that one to come out into the world, even though people have said that that, like, you know, feedback I've gotten is that, you know, I really went there and they liked that. But, you know, his mom reading it... <laughs> Right. And like, you know, the like real close to home people might be like, oh. (laughs) And so there's, you know, there's some fear of like, and then I talk about um, being addicted to Adderall in my early 20s. So there's, there's some stories that I've actually never really told. And, you know, while I've had a pretty vulnerable blog over the years, 
Um, I feel like I really am exposing things that I haven't shared. And so there's that definitely that that fear of like being seen for all of the ways in which I was self-sabotaging as well as like all the ways that I worked through. But um, worrying that people will judge me, of course. Yeah, I think it's and, – and we are so tricky in the way that we judge ourselves. It's like we can read somebody else's book – who reveals really, really vulnerable stuff and be like, though that specific list of things is fine that they've shared. (laughs) But my specific list of things is really awful and everyone's going to hate me for it. It's the writer's brain is is so... Because we work with words, I think, it makes us so much more able to criticize ourselves and to split hairs and to to sort of skewer ourselves, it seems. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And my, my always like decision point is if I'm terrified to share it, it means that I must. And so, Mm. and I, and I even like, of course I shared it with my fiance before, like he was one of the first people who read it and he, you know, I think thankful, so thankful to him because he was like, this is of course hard to read, but you have to put this in the book. Mm. And I was like, you know, wow, thank you. And just, he's like this, more of this, more of this. So he's always encouraged me to really like go there and go down the path of truth telling. And so that's been super helpful. I think that there is a whole, it's an impulse that seems to be out now, now that, I don't know, maybe I'm blaming Instagram, even though I love Instagram, but that we have to present ourselves in this kind of perfect, pristine, staged way. And I think as a result of seeing so much material that way, people crave stories that don't look like that. 100%, yes. Have you read um, Megan O'Connell's And Now We Have Everything? No. It's making me think of that a little bit. She was on recently. It's about um, motherhood, which is interesting because I have a stepdaughter, not any biological children, and yet I could not put this book down. But she talks about a lot of difficult topics like postpartum depression and dealing with her and her husband's sex life, like in the aftermath of having a baby. And it's, there's a similar level of vulnerability that it makes me think about in what you're sharing, Mm. that there was a similar fear in sharing that. And she, she talked about her husband saying like, oh, I couldn't finish that chapter, but I thought it was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because we're, you know, we're talking about real experiences. Glennon Doyle, I think, you know, she obviously really opened the can. Obviously. And then I think of Cheryl Strayed's book, Tiny Beautiful Things, I, when you were talking about how you hear someone else's story, she's like, she was like doing heroin and like, you know, I was like, no big deal, no big deal. Um, but it's, yeah. it's so true that when you're reading someone else, you don't think, but then you, when you think about your own story, it's like, oh, that's way too much. Exactly. So you're at the starting line at the starting of line. putting it out there. How are you feeling right now? I'm feeling really centered right now, really anchored and in knowing that this is the book that I needed to write and to just like, you know, I, it could be so easy to, while I have these, of course, grand goals, you know, not attaching to any outcome and really just like letting, like seeing what happens and like being in wonder about how it unfolds um, is really where I'm at in this moment. I think that sounds really exciting. Are you, as you've been ready to put this book out have any other books been hovering around in your mind or are you taking a break before going further in the book writing process I feel like I'm gonna write a lot of books um yes <laughs> I think I think actually more of a relationship focused one mm. um is something that I want to want to do at some point but I feel like I'm writing the book right now because through my I there was someone actually this might help for the people who are 
for sure on the, on this listening. Um, I think it was eight years ago. I met an author and I was like, I want to write books. He's like, you are writing your book right now. Mm. And remembering that my, when your, your life experiences are the most important writing of the book. And so, um, I always like, you know, and I carry a journal and run with me where I'm like jotting down notes, but really like you have to experience it to be able to then write about it. And so if you want to write something, like make your life an interesting experience. <laughs> yeah. And so right now I'm definitely in the process of uh, writing in that relationship book through my life experiences. And then, you know, I have a lot of, there's like fluttering ideas, but I'm, I'm more focused on this one and just allowing that inspiration. I'm actually more, I have a vision for sort of a, museum of emotions in a way where it would be a highly interactive um artistic experience where people are immersed into different rooms and each room is a different emotion brought to life that you viscerally get to experience oh that sounds so great because i love the like experience art stuff so it's like okay now how do i take the book and turn it into that and then i don't know we'll see i'm in early conversation you have an art installation book party yeah well that's sort of we're doing um an immersive like wonderland experience for the book launch party. So cool. So, so cool. We'll have a link to your site in the show notes so that people can find all of these exciting events Yes, and where you'll be on tour and all of those things. Um, I think will be really great. Well, I can't tell you how exciting it is to have talked about this because the the concept of choosing mm-hmm. wonder over worry is something that I think writers have to do every single day. So I know that this book will inspire them to do so and that you have those practical, both the stories of how you've done it yourself as well as those practical <laughs> tips. And there's nothing I love more than a diagram. So I think that will be a, a huge resource to everyone listening. And I'm so grateful that we got to speak about it further. Yeah, so fun. Thank you, Ezzy. <laughs> I know. Thanks to Ezzy for introducing us. And um, thank you for coming on. Yeah, of course. This is amazing. Hey, just a quick pause for your audiobook recommendation of the week. So once again, this episode, we are very lucky uh, that both author's books that are being discussed are available on audio. So you can get either of them as free credits at secretlibrarypodcast.com slash audible. And in addition, I want to recommend Madeline Miller's previous book, Song of Achilles, also extremely well narrated um, and a great way to catch up on your classics. So again, you can get your free trial at secretlibrarypodcast.com slash audible. And I would recommend Circe, Song of Achilles, or Choose Wonder Over Worry, which is narrated by the lovely Amber Ray herself. All right, happy listening. Let's get back to the show. My second guest this week is the amazing Madeline Miller. She attended Brown University, where she earned her BA and MA in classics. She went on to teach and tutor Latin, Greek, and Shakespeare to high school students for more than 15 years. She also studied at the University of Chicago's Committee on Social Thought and in the Dramaturgy Department at Yale School of Drama, where she focused on the adaptation of classical texts to modern forms. The Song of Achilles, her first novel, was awarded the 2012 Orange Prize for Fiction and was a New York Times bestseller. It has been translated into over 25 languages. She was also shortlisted for the 2012 Stonewall Writer of the Year, and her essays have appeared in a number of publications, including The Guardian, Wall Street Journal, Lapham's Quarterly, and NPR.org. 
Her second novel, Circe, was a number one New York Times bestseller instantly. She currently lives outside Philadelphia. It was such an honor to speak with Madeline Miller. I really, really loved meeting her at the LA Times Festival of Books. That was a real highlight. And this book, if you haven't devoured it already, then you will want to after this conversation. Um, It is really, really engrossing and fascinating. And it only made me more excited about the layers and the complexity and how much it took to dive into this source material and really make it come alive, which it does. Um, I know you're going to love this conversation as much as I did. So let's get right to Madeline Miller. Hey, Madeline, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. This is such an exciting book. So I've been so eager to talk about it. And I'm thrilled that you were willing to read a little selection so that people can get a sense of the book um, when we talk about it, because I think that'll I think that'll help set the tone. Sure. Um, so this section comes from the middle of the novel. Uh, Circe is the daughter of the sun god Helios. She is a goddess herself, um, and she's also the first witch in Western literature, and she's most famous for turning men to pigs in the Odyssey. Um, so I am going to read a pig section. <laughs> uh, and the, the he in this section is Odysseus. So this, is, this takes place after she has already started turning men to pigs. He asked me once, why pigs? We were seated before my hearth in our usual chairs. He liked the one draped in cowhide with silver inlaid in its carvings. Sometimes he would rub the scrolling absently beneath his thumb. Why not? I said. He gave me a bare smile. I mean it. I would like to know. I knew he meant it. He was not a pious man, but the seeking out of things hidden. This was his highest worship. There were answers in me. I felt them, very deep as last year's bulbs growing fat. Their roots tangled with those moments I had spent against the wall, when my lions were gone and my spells shut up inside me. After I changed to crew, I would watch them scrabbling and crying in the sty, falling over each other, stupid with their horror. They hated it all, their newly voluptuous flesh, their delicate split trotters, their swollen bellies dragging in the earth's muck. It was a humiliation, a debasement. They were sick with longing for their hands, those appendages men used to mitigate the world. Come, I would say to them, it's not that bad. You should appreciate a pig's advantages. Mud slick and swift, they are hard to catch. Low to the ground, they cannot easily be knocked over. They are not like dogs, they do not need your love. They can thrive anywhere, on anything scraps and trash. They look witless and dull, which lulls their enemies, but they are clever. They will remember your face. They never listened. The truth is, men make terrible pigs. I love it. (laughs) It's so great. Thank you. (laughs) There's something so satisfying about that passage. Um, And the thing that I remember, so for those listening, I'm, I was lucky enough to meet Madeline at the LA Times Festival of Books, where I heard her speak about this book also. And something that you said has stuck with me ever since, and I've been so excited to talk to you to ask you about it, mm. which is you said that they're both with Song of Achilles, your, your previous novel, and this one, 
there was a period of five years of writing some pages and kind of leading up to a period where I believe you said you got into like a trench of despair. I may be misquoting you. Nope, that sounds right. <laughs> and then it, and then you felt like you got the voice of Circe, which could not be more clear in the passage you just read. And I'm wondering if I, I was like, oh, is she going to talk about the trench of despair and the, and what was <laughs> happening leading up to it? I'm dying to know. So I'm, I mean, not to you know, drag you through a horrible period again. But I'm really interested now that you know how this process works, if we could like Mm. stretch it and telescope it out a little bit and talk about the anatomy of the process of finding a character who is in both cases of both your novels known to so many already. How did you get inside the one that you brought to the page? Um, It it was a lot of wrong turns. I I think that those five years, um, and now it's easy to talk about the five years in the trench of despair because I'm out of it. (laughs) But at the time it was, it did not feel that I was heading towards an eventual revelation. Um, Maybe the next time I'll be able to have faith that I am in fact heading towards a, a, a revelation. But I think that some of what I was doing was really just trying different ways into the story and into the character, kind of trying to find that character's through line. Um, in terms of both the story and Song of Achilles, I actually knew what I wanted the ending to be, Mm. not, you know, the actual words, but I I knew where I wanted the character to end up. And I think that my issue with getting both books started is that I didn't know what the beginning was. And so I couldn't shoot the arrow from, you know, because I didn't have a point to stand. I I could see my target, but I didn't know actually where I was standing (laughs) um, for, for the beginning. And so that was the real, the real problem is, is finding my way in both to the voice and to the character story and to that emotional through line. You know, what is the emotional journey? Because particularly when you're working with a story um, that people know, and this is true more for Song of Achilles than it is for Cersei because I, I added a lot more connective tissue to Cersei because her, um, the myths about her are much more scattered and disjointed and they don't form, you know, an, a sort of structure that's already there. But, but when you are working with stuff that, that does exist, I think the point for me is always to um, make the emotional journey satisfying, you know, that the reader might know the end, they might have heard, you know, something about the myth about where everything ends up, but that you still have to make the journey satisfying. For me, I think of it as being a little bit like directing a play. I, I direct Shakespeare plays, and so it's very much like directing, for example, Hamlet or Othello, where a lot of the audience is going to sit down and kind of know at least the bare bones of the story. And, you know, they know that at the end, Othello, you know, kills Desdemona. But what you want as a director is you want, when you get to that moment, the audience to be on the edge of their seat saying, no, don't do it. Um, well, maybe this time I, she won't. She won't die. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. And I think, I think um, doing that with Shakespeare and directing so many Shakespeare plays for years really helped me kind of focus on that journey as opposed to, you know, the twist ending, how it, it helps me learn how to tell a story where, where the arc was, you know, was known, but what mattered was kind of how it came together. So my first instinct was to start in Medias Race, which is 
means in Latin, in the middle of things, which is how all epics start. So the Iliad starts kind of, you know, in the last year of the war with this big fight between Achilles and Agamemnon. Um, the Odyssey starts after Odysseus has already been gone for, you know, 10 years. So um, that's, how, that's how all good epics start. So I, I started there, and I started with the scene where Daedalus, the master craftsman, um, comes to uh, Iaia, Circe's island, to invite her to Crete, which is where her sister is. Um, and I worked on that scene for a long time, but in Medias Race was just not doing it for me. I, I really wanted to actually start with her childhood because it was all about that three-dimensional character development. And given that there was going to be this cast of thousands, um, which always happens when you're dealing with the gods, I really wanted to be able to, you know, kind of stick to a more traditional timeline, a more classic timeline of kind of beginning to end. And I, I thought if I started adding jumps in time, as well as divinities and monsters, it would be kind of too much. Um, so I went back to the beginning and I started working on her childhood scenes. And this sounds like such a, such a simple thing, but... Um, in some versions of the myth, she has three siblings, and in some versions of the myth, she only has two. Uh, and that was a huge point of decision for me. <laughs> I wrote a lot of scenes with her having only two siblings and a lot with her having three. Which one and Which one it, was not there in the two? Uh, it was Perseus, who was oh. the, he's, he's the one who kind of goes off to Persia. The Greeks connected his name with the Persians. Um, right. And he becomes kind of a necromancer. Um, in some versions of the myth. So her, her other two siblings, Aetes, the father of Medea, and Pasiphae, the mother of the Minotaur, they're always there. Um, and, you know, in terms of childhood dynamics, the foursome versus the threesome is actually a huge change in terms of family, <laughs> you know, how everything works out in the family. So um, I ended up going for her having three siblings, so there are four of them, which uh, I, I'm sort of I can't necessarily articulate why I went with that, but it seemed right in the moment to have sort of this, them kind of break out into this two and two um, configuration. I found it really satisfying because in the beginning, she's outnumbered. And then yes. having Aetes appear and suddenly having an ally and then losing him, it, yes. it felt like it set up everything that she was disappointed by later. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, I wanted her to have this very strong relationship with her brother initially and then to kind of get the rug pulled out from under her. And so I felt like that strength would come better from having that, you know, two and two. Um, so it was just, it was stuff like that. I was, I was trying, I was trying things out. And for me, I always have to write the scene. I can't just think it. And because when I'm thinking it, everything sounds like a good idea. <laughs> um, but then, you know, to have to write the scene and suddenly be dealing with the nitty gritty of the character development on the page suddenly reveals whether or not it's a terrible idea or, you know, maybe this is worth exploring. Um, so a lot of those five years were just was me just doing that, writing the scene, realizing it was wrong, trying again, <laughs> writing the scene, realizing it was wrong. Um, and I, I think my process is really just that I have to go down every wrong path before I can see the one that is left. <laughs> yeah, I can see where that would be frustrating. But then when you get the right one, like, do you know immediately? Like, yes, this works? I did know, but it was not. So it came after that old trench of despair we talked about. <laughs> so what happened is that, um, is that I, I had worked and worked and worked and thrown out and thrown out and thrown out. 
And I finally thought, I just need a break. I'm, I can't get this. I guess I can't get this. And so what I decided to do was work on this other project that I had been thinking about for a long time. I mentioned my background in Shakespeare. Um, I, I was a theater director. And I, I really wanted to work on Shakespeare's Tempest. Now, as it turns out, Shakespeare's Tempest is actually totally relevant to Cersei's story. Absolutely. It's also about islands and magic and witches and <laughs> all kinds of things. Um, so working on that, uh, I think, allowed my brain unconsciously to kind of untangle the threads, which story belonged to Cersei and which belonged to the Tempest and how I needed to... To approach that. So I worked on The Tempest for maybe six months and I didn't really get anywhere with it. And one day I thought, well, let me, let me just go back and look at all those Cersei junk pages that I have. And I opened the document, looked at it, and all of a sudden I could, it was, I could see my way through. And I, and I had the first sentence, you know, um, when I was born, the name for what I was did not exist. And once I had that first sentence, it was as if I had my starting point and I could, I could see the end. I knew the end that had been there from the beginning and I could just go. So it really was kind of a revelation. That's amazing. So so you had five years of writing and throwing things out, then a six-month maybe trench of despair plus break. <laughs> and, then, and then like an aha light went off. Yes. And then how long was it that you spent writing at that point? So then it was, it was basically two years um, of me just working straight, straight through, flat out. Um, right after I had my, my moment of revelation... I also discovered that I was pregnant with our second child, um, which, you know, it, it was planned, but I, you never know when exactly these things are coming. And so I thought, wow, I have nine months to get a really solid draft <laughs> and nice. I better go. <laughs> so during those nine months, I worked, you know, I, I wouldn't say round the clock because I did do some other things, but pretty much every day I was putting in eight or, or 10 hour days every day. Um, because I, I really wanted to have a solid grasp, a draft of the story before, um, before she was born. Uh, and I, you know, cause it's hard to sort of see what's going to come after. Uh, and then she was born and I took maybe a month and a half off and then I was kind of right back into it, revising that draft. So it was a very, once I have that first sentence, and this is true for Song of Achilles as well. Um, I can just, I can go. It's just a matter of putting in the hours. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, you have to know where you're going. And once you know, it, it feels more efficient to like, you know, if you have a map and you can follow it, you're like, okay, I'm driving in this direction. I can go really fast. But if you're like, I don't know, I'm going down these driveways. It might be the wrong house. Like that takes forever. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. At least I can, I can see the road and um, I still have to deal with all the stuff like, you know, writing scenes that are not good enough and, you know, awkward sentences and, and all that kind of stuff. But it, it sort of feels like regular writing as opposed to the, <laughs> the, am I going down the wrong, is this a driveway or a road? I don't even know. Oy. I had this fantasy cooked up in my head, so I want to fact check it with you, because seeing as you started as a teacher of classics and you spent 15 years teaching, did you dream then that you would write a, a book that that would kind of bring the mythology to life for them? I had this fantasy of you being like, oh, I wish I could have this book that would really like tell the story in a different way. Or did you just always want to write fiction as well? It was some of both. So I, I have always loved writing fiction. Um, and I, I've been writing since I was very young, just as I've loved myths since I was young. 
But for many, many years, those two things were just completely parallel and they never connected. So I would write contemporary fiction and I would study classics and I would write contemporary and it never occurred to me in any way to cross those over. And then my senior year of college, I directed a production of Troilus and Cressida. I had never directed a play before. And Troilus and Cressida is Shakespeare's version of the Iliad. Um, so I was brought on as kind of the Iliad person. And I completely fell in love with storytelling in that way, um, with working with Achilles is in it and Hector's in it. And it's, it's a very nasty, bitter, funny, vicious interpretation of all the characters. So that was really fun, too, to come at it from Shakespeare's perspective um, and, and try and bring Shakespeare's vision to light. And when that play was over, that is where I had my revelation moment of I want to write about the myths from this ancient perspective, um, but I want to make it a novel. And I think up till that point, I, I had actually been working on Achilles and Patroclus's relationship, which is the subject of my first novel, um, for my thesis. And as soon as I finished the play, I thought, forget that. This is not a thesis. This is a novel, and I <laughs> and I and I want to write it. So. Um, so that's how the two connected. But then as I became a teacher, I was very frustrated that I, I think it's sometimes hard for students nowadays to hit the ground running on either the Iliad or the Odyssey because both, both poems need so much background knowledge, which ancient readers would have had no problem. You know, they would have known who Achilles was and Agamemnon was. They were steeped in these myths. Um, they were not something that were elitist or just for a particular part of the of the population. They were stories that grandparents told to their grandchildren. And and I think a, a lot of students, you know, when they first come to these stories, if they don't, if they haven't read, for example, Percy Jackson and they don't have a background in it, um, you know, all they see are the really long names and it sort of feels <laughs> impossible to get a handle on. So what I would do is I would tell them the story of the Iliad before I would have them read anything. I would just tell it to them, which is exactly how, you know, the ancients would do it. This was all initially oral tradition. Um, and they seem to really respond to that. And so I think part of what I did want to do with this novel was have it be a way for people who didn't necessarily know the Greek myths to to come into them and to feel like, okay, I can understand this. This is for me. I don't really have to do homework before I can read this. Um, and then, of course, if you did know the myths, there are some extra goodies in there. But, but I mean, I, I think my desire to make it something that anyone could read and, and a way to welcome people into the stories absolutely came from my for my teaching. Yeah, I think, I mean, that was something that I loved about, um, so Mary Lauren Felpott and I talked about your book a couple of weeks ago. And and she was like, I'm not a myth person. I can't keep my gods and goddesses straight. And I was like, <laughs> I was like a myth junkie. I was like, you got a myth class. I'm going to take that myth class. You give it to me. I'm ready. I'm like reading about Ariadne on my spare time. But so it is amazing to me that, but the tone and again, important that we had a little sample, but it's something accessible. And I think the other thing is that one of the things I find really satisfying about the stories, particularly in your interpretation, is that even if you're dealing with gods and goddesses, in many ways, they're just like humans, only more intense. It's like there's no yeah. barriers holding them. There's nothing limiting them. Like, oh, well, I have to be patient. Life is hard. Like, they don't have that kind of perspective. So you... <laughs> I think that everybody has felt like Circe has felt, you know, watching somebody you love fall in love with someone else or feeling drunk on your own power when you figure out that you have it. I mean, it's 
I think the emotional content of the story, it's lovely to see it exposed in a way, because sometimes that can be hidden behind some of the more like name heavy descriptions in, in other interpretations. Yes, yes. I, I feel that there is so much wonderful, rich, emotional material in these stories. And that if you can kind of just get past that initial, um, you know, hump of, of the names or the, or, you know, the God, the fact that you're dealing with gods or monsters, that's something that people I think also are, are sometimes a little bit leery of, that, that there is, you know, all this stuff is just human experience, that the ancients are, are writing about human nature and human nature is the thing that hasn't changed, you know, grief and, and loving someone who doesn't love you back and going to war and losing someone, all, all this is just, it's, it's timeless human emotion. And um, so I wanted to bring that out. You know, it was already there for me, but I wanted to bring it out. And in particular, I wanted to bring it out for the female characters, because I do think that the female characters in Greek myth, although they're sometimes very powerful, oftentimes they're really ciphers, and you don't understand why they're doing what they're doing. You know, Circe, here's Circe, she's turning men to pigs. This was an incredibly vivid thing. <laughs> but Homer never tells us why. He doesn't say, you know, oh, she was doing this because of X, Y, Z. And Odysseus never asks her. It's sort of as if women are treated as these irrational creatures who do things just because, you know, she does it because she's cruel, because she's capricious, because who knows why she's on a power trip. But I, I don't really believe that those are, are interesting answers or realistic answers. I think people do things for, for reasons. Um, even if those reasons can be hard to understand, they do have them. And so I, I wanted to also burrow into kind of the, the psychological background of how someone could start doing this pretty extreme thing. Yeah, and it is completely believable. And you're almost kind of rooting for her. Um, yeah, <laughs> I have to say, because I think that's true. I think a lot of these stories you see, I mean, and not just in myths, I mean, we see this throughout literature, but that would be, you know, a three hour conversation. Right. But where where women are sort of carrying either the greatest fantasy or the greatest fear of a male author. Yes. And and in this case, the same story, I think there's a whole different lead up to it and you get to know her better and you see all the little things that happened that led to that. And it's true. You're like, girl, you go turn those men to pigs. They deserve it. <laughs> well, and that's, I wanted, you know, I wanted there to be a touch of that. Um, exactly. And Cersei, I mean, I love what you just said about how female figures are often the fantasy or the fear. And I think Cersei is actually both. Yes. That she is she is the incarnation of of male fears about female power. And she has continued to be that kind of through through the centuries. That in the Middle Ages, um, she was the example of, you know, this is what happens if you let your wife have too much say. You know, she's gonna unman you, she's gonna turn you into pig like Cer into a pig like Cersei. Um, but She's also, you know, the sexy, the sexy witch who after Odysseus has tamed her, you know, she takes him to, his, to her bed and they become lovers and she entertains him on her luxurious island. And so, so she's both. And part of what I wanted to do was kind of take away that male gaze. Um, and, you know, she has become fixed in kind of the vision of the male traditional heroic journey. And in every sense, kind of flip it and, and give her back her autonomy, her agency and, and her vision of the world. And so even in very small ways, I tried to do that um, from the fantasy aspect. Odysseus uh, describes her as having beautifully braided hair. And it's sort of this it's this word that 
implies that, you know, again, it's her sexy goddessness and leading up to the fact that, hey, you know, I bagged a goddess is basically kind of where this is all going um, as he's as he's telling the story and in a sense boasting about his encounter with Cersei. But I was thinking, well, you know, here she is. She's a witch. She's on the island. She's constantly digging in her garden. She's constantly tromping through the woods to find, you know, a new herb or a new root. Of course, she would braid her hair. You know, that makes total sense <laughs> to me. And so I wanted it to be coming from that perspective. You know, Odysseus sees it as, as part of his fantasy, but how does she see it? She sees it as something very practical that's about her work. Yeah, like get this hair out of my way. Right. <laughs> also, I love this the bit about, I mean, this comes very early. I'm sort of, I mean, this is a tricky book to talk about because on the one hand, the story is so available. Yeah. <laughs> yet at the same time, I'm like, I don't want to reveal anything. Um, <laughs> but just that she's so self-conscious about her hair and that we sort of see her, you know, growing up reading about her. She was always this like overbearing, overbearing kind of intense goddess that you were supposed to feel bad because... Penelope by comparison, like how's she supposed to compete kind of thing. But yet she's sort of like the the sort of less desirable, screechy voiced um, with her streaky hair. I mean, I wonder, you know, that, that she doesn't love her hair that much. Maybe to immortal, she looks amazing. But to herself, she's always comparing herself to other gods, which I think is very human as well. Yes, yes. And, and part of what I, I was interested in, in terms of her being a goddess is the fact that, you know, the ancient Greek gods were very hierarchical. And so, you know, Zeus, Helios, Athena, Apollo, if you were one of those, you know, life was good for you. But if you were what Circe is, a nymph, you were really the lowest of the low. Um, you barely had any power and you had no station and you were pretty much at the mercy of greater gods and often at the mercy of the mortal world as well. And so, I wanted to, to represent that sort of the fact that when it comes to comparing her to other goddesses, she she's lesser. Um, and I, I also wanted to, to bring her closer a little bit to the mortal world. Homer describes her beautifully as the dread goddess, the terrifying goddess who speaks like a human, like a mortal. And so that was interesting to me, too, that she already has kind of a foot in each world. Um, and she, she doesn't really belong in either, but she's also able to reflect on both of them. She has this piece of her that is, you know, her voice that is human, um, even though she's born a goddess. So that was something I really wanted to, I wanted to look at. And, and exactly, exactly as you say, I think she, I, I think we all often feel our own awkwardnesses, particularly when we're growing up very keenly. Absolutely. I think that, I, I think all of these things kind of make her such a wonderful character. And I'm sure everybody will be, if they haven't already, if you haven't already read the book and are listening to this, um, having read it, I hope you immediately go out and snatch it up because it is well worth the read. Well, I want to thank you so much, Madeline, for coming on. This has been really wonderful speaking with you. Oh, it was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for such lovely questions. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.